0: hey guys this is the vicious cycle podcast and I'm your host Kenton gear uh, I want to start this podcast off uh, for those of you who have been listening you know that this is only my fifth uh, episode so far um, it's my first week and uh, I don't know so far so good I've had some positive feedback a little bit of negative um, I think anytime you do anything you always have someone who's not quite happy with you but you know, I'm going to just kind of continue to work on this thing and hopefully uh, fine, uh, fine-tune it and tweak it where uh, it's something that the majority of people want to listen to, at least the majority of fishermen, and um, hopefully we can get to that point. Uh, I want to thank, I have had five people so far favorite me as their podcast. That means a lot to me. I want to send a shout-out to all five of those people, and hopefully I don't butcher your names Uh uh, these, these folks all fa- favored me on Anchor, the original hosting platform. Uh, Elliot Ambrose, uh, Ryan Haranaka, Jeff Williams, Richard Del Reyes, Anthony Frescatore or Frescatori. If I butcher those, send me a message and I'll try to do better. If I didn't, thank you all the same. I really appreciate you guys listening and the fact that you would put mine as a favorite means a lot to me. Uh, so thank you for that. Thank you for the encouraging words. Um it's kind of daddy time now. It's, uh, it's 1030 at night. The kids are in bed. I've got, uh, I've got a drink going in front of me. I had a fun day with the kids. Uh, we went and paddled around for a little bit. There wasn't really much surf, but we got wet. And a lot of times it's just important to get wet. I think anyone that spends any time around the ocean knows that, eh, sometimes it's a matter of being there. It's not always, uh, you're not going to always have your best days, so I don't know. I'm glad we got wet, but uh, today we are going to do some question and answers. I uh, I was supposed to have a guest last night, and unfortunately, it just didn't really come together, and um, <clears throat> so instead, I decided that I would do some of the questions that I get on a routine basis. Uh, one thing I'm hoping that this is going to do, um, and maybe some of you guys have experienced it, with someone else or even with me, I get lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of questions. And I honestly try to do my very best to answer them all because I always think that if somebody took the time to send me that message, um, then I should, in turn, take the time to respond. Um, Now, that was fine when I had you know, five followers on Instagram. But as my following has built up, uh, the number of questions has definitely increased. And um, also, this sounds lame, you know, but for a long time, I didn't even know there was that other box, like the request box, if you weren't following the people. So lots of messages went that way. And then I'd get a response from someone, a follow up message where they thought I was a jerk or something for not writing them back. But I'll tell you what ha- has happened as. The a number of inquiries has grown, uh, you know. Trying to be respectful of everybody that sends me a message, man. Sometimes my day is just gone, and uh, you know, I think uh, I'll be honest that sometimes I get scared to even look at a message because I don't want someone to think I read it and then was being rude by not responding. Um, and I'm hoping that maybe this podcast would be a good platform for that. Um, because I can easily speak out just about anything that those folks are asking, but sometimes the response just takes a really, really long time to type on my phone. And uh, so for that reason, hopefully uh, this works, and hopefully um, those people will listen and uh, be able to hear what they're looking for. And I plan on doing this probably, you know, every week. now, I say every week, some weeks I'm just gone. I'm gone offshore fishing. so, I won't be able to do that, but uh, anyways, let's delve right into it. Uh, one thing I also wanted to do is I wanted to pull up uh, some of the other messages, and, I'm, I, and I'll, I'll pick everyone that got sent to me today because I did I, I I did make a calling asking for anyone that had questions um, to please feel free, and I would do my best to answer them. And so I'm just gonna go right through my inbox in the order that we got them and, um, hopefully I can help. Uh, but I do want to pull up some of the other ones. As you might imagine, um, the, the internet gives everyone the power to write something and people don't always necessarily agree with what you're saying. Uh, they don't necessarily agree with your lifestyle or, uh, your business. And so as you might guess, I, uh, I would say that I get 95% or better really positive and great things. People saying they enjoy what I'm saying. Uh, you know, They enjoy their fishery and hopefully my consciousness towards fish. But again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying at the very beginning of this podcast that it just can't make everyone happy. And I think some of the things I, I, I initially, I used to try to really respond. And most of the time I have, But some people, you're just not going to make happy, no matter what you do. So, let's look at our questions. What do we got? First one, 32 minutes ago. Hmm. I'm listening to the Master of Trickery now. Question mark. I wish I had a question. Okay, that's not really a question, but I also wish you had a question as well, Vanessa. Let's see. Come on up. Do you think lure heads are as important as the skirt colors when fishing for eyes? Ooh, great question. I think lure heads are more important than skirt colors, if you ask me. I think uh, that the action of the lure is more important than the color. Um, And what I mean by that is that I think depending on what the fish are targeting on That day uh, or maybe that week, fish kind of go through cycles, whether it's a a lure that skitters across the top or if it's a lure that kind of, um, uh, you know, surfs down sea like a a cup face lure that kind of plows. In my opinion, that the head's action is more important than the color. But that being said, like most fishermen, I do get a little superstitious about color selection I get those kind of questions a lot about what are my favorite colors, and for me, I think the most important thing I have found over the years is contrast or the lack thereof, and what I mean by that, uh, just try a lot of different things. Like, I like some skirts that are just pure black. Black over black is one of my favorite. Um, purple over black, you know, uh, is a is a steady one, and then um but on the other hand, a lot of ones like the general, probably you guys have all, you know, uh, probably not, I shouldn't even say everyone, that's probably not true at all, but like the general is a blue and silver over a pink. And I think that kind of is, you know, like the, or blue and silver over red. And that's referring to like red, white, and blue. That's one of my favorites. And that one has a lot of contrast. The outside is blue and silver and the inside is pink. Um, that is uh, also definitely one of my favorites. But for me, I do that a lot. I do the same skirt uh, over, the other skirt. Like I double them up. Uh, I, I really like that style. But uh, again, I, I think just play with it. But I, I, for me, when I think ahis, and my thought process might be different on this, but my thing is like change. So what we do is we mark a lot of fish. Like I see a lot of fish in my fishery. And if I'm not getting bites, I'm consistently changing the presentation that I'm putting out there as far as the trolling. Um, if I if I roll over a lot of marks, I'm not the kind of fisherman that says okay they're just not biting today. Um, I'm more apt to uh, really change uh, not so much colors, but more so styles. I have really found that sometimes if they're dialed into like say flying fish, that they're they're really into a bait that kind of skitters across the top or what they do I call like a black water um type lure where if you look at it it doesn't look like it's doing a whole lot um a lot of times you might see that like in a jet or a different bullet style head but you kind of get a wake off it where uh kind of looks like a boat is going through there like real slowly um so for me i mean i think the debate will always be out there for what color is best but for me i think the important part is to really um have you know either have multiple selections of head styles going all at one time or definitely be willing to try different style heads on any given day if you're not getting bites. Um, Another thing I want to say about that, really, uh, that partly has to go with depth, too. If you're rolling over fish and you're seeing them at 80 fathoms, well, that's kind of like, eh, maybe they'll come up, maybe they won't. But if you're rolling over ahis and you're steadily marking them at, like, say, 20 to Thirty fathoms, maybe even forty. Forty's kind of like that borderline. I, I usually get excited if I see forty, but if I'm marking, uh, and when I say marking, if I if I'm seeing fish on the sounder at you know twenty or thirty fathoms or shallower, and I'm not getting bites, that's when I get worried about my selection. Instead of being like, okay, just you know, just stick with old faithful. Uh, if the fish are in the upper water column and I'm not getting bites, that's when I will definitely play with my spread. Good question. Thank you again. Let's see. Next question from Jen. Pass, with a big, scary face. Okay, all right, Jen. Not sure what that means, but she doesn't have any questions. Uh, Gus. Smiley face. Well, love you too, buddy. Best way to eat a blue marlin. Ooh, well, of course, that's totally dependent on... um, on your personal taste, but one thing I can tell you about blue marlin is that uh, like any fish, preparation is key from the minute you catch them. The better you take care of them when you get them to the boat, the better the product you will have when you get back. And so if you're really harvesting a blue marlin just to eat, my recommendation is that you bleed it, you know, um, well ideally you gill and gut it. As soon as you catch it, And get it down to temperature. The better you treat the fish, and this goes for anything mahi, you know, onos, any of your fish, the better you treat them, the better quality product you have. Like on my boat, it is a sin for a fish to flap around. And that's because um, I sell to, you know, primarily a, a premium market, and you can't have fish thrashing around and beating themselves up. And so the same is. True for a blue marlin, um, when you get to the boat, we dispatch its life over the side uh, before we bring it in. You don't want a blue marlin lighting up on your deck and ripping you apart. And the other thing is they beat themselves to death and really destroy the meat if they're flapping on the deck. So everything we do is about taking the best care of what we catch, with the idea being not only that we're fully honoring that fish's life, but the better that you take care of that fish, the better it will ultimately treat you. So Uh, For me, if I get a blue marlin, I'm going to plan on eating it. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to dispatch it over the side, whether that's with a firearm, if you're not concerned about IGFA, which you're probably not if you are killing it in the first place. Um, For those of you who don't know, that's International Game Fishing Association rules. Um, That uh, doesn't really apply to most local fishermen, particularly around Hawaii or hobbyists in general, where multiple people will be touching the rods and yada, yada, yada rather than getting into all the rules right now, um, most people that are harvesting a fish, um, they just really care about eating it. So um, if you don't have a gun, if that's not your jam, understandable. Uh, most of the marlin that we harvest, we uh, we will hit them over the side of the boat with a bat um, or a hammer, something along those lines. Uh, basically, we hold them over the side of the boat, hit them over the side, and um, wait until that fish isn't moving or nearly lifeless. We'll pull it in the boat and, um, then we cut behind one collar of the fish. We'll, we cut the membrane behind the gills. We stick our, our deck hose inside there. And um, we have the water pumping through the fish as one person holds down the gill. And uh, what that does is when the circulatory system is still alive, uh, it, although the, the fish's brain is dead, physically the body of the fish is still is still still not quite totally dead. And so what, what, you're, what you're doing is you're taking the, that fish's final moments and putting the, the pressure of the water through it and it's flushing as much meat, uh, as much blood as you can out of the meat, giving yourself a, a higher quality product. Uh, we then cut the head off, um, which re- removes the, uh, the need for, you know, the gills come out with that as well. But if you want to keep the head on, you need that photo, um, you can just go ahead and gill and gut it by pulling back one, one gill one gill plate and uh, cutting the stomach. Um, you really only need to cut the stomach probably six inches to maybe a foot to disconnect um, to disconnect the, um, the intestines on the lower end. But if uh, you're just gonna do it for what's the best quality of the fish, I would cut that stomach all the way up from the anal fin to uh, just below the pecs. And the reason I would do that is because when you gill and gut a marlin, you want to get rid of the air bladder and the bloodline that is right up against, the, um, right up against the, the spine. And so the best way to do that is you can actually physically take a knife, cut it down each side of the marlin's uh, bone, stick a scrub brush right up there, and that blood will nicely scrub right out of there with your hose, blasting that all out. And then, um, depending on the size of your fish, if you have a fish box to completely submerge the fish in, that's your best case scenario for getting a temp. But if you don't, uh, you want to pack its stomach, um, fully with ice and get an igloo of, of, uh, ice around the fish. Basically your rule of thumb, uh, if you don't, if you have a brine, you can get away with less than one to one, at least for initial chilling, but not for say market grade. So market grade, uh, you know, in most fisheries, your fish needs to be down around 40 degrees internally uh, when they take it. And with most fish, that's about 24 hours. But if this is just for consuming your own fish, um, it doesn't need to get that temperature. In fact, if you're, if you're going to go in and cut it right away, you could even get away with as little as just getting keeping the fish moist, having a wet towel over it, and cutting it. But... There's no question that if you are able to ice it and you're able to wait uh, to cut the fish, you will have a much, much higher quality product. A fish, a a marlin that comes out of a brine, for example, uh, 24 hours later uh, is much, 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 much nicer than cutting a warm one that just came off a deck. I hope that answered your question. Uh, That is one for me to easily go off on a tangent. Um, Oh, I guess you said the best way. Well, if you get a small blue, like the ones that like, you know, like, you know, like under 150 pounds. I love them for sashimi. Most of the, most of the fish that we sell go for, um, the local poke market. Um, so most of it is going in poke. It's a beautiful fish. I'm always amazed how many people eat marlin and poke and don't even realize that it's actually marlin. So, um, it's really good there. I, a lot of people like it smoked, um, blackened. There are a lot of great recipes, honestly, for me though. Um, I guess really the truth is ceviche. I love blue marlin ceviche because it's a really nice firm fish, and it. I mean, I feed people blue marlin ceviche all the time, and they're like, "Wow, this my my or this ono is great," and I'm like, "Nah, I'm like that's blue marlin." Um, I really like the fact that it doesn't flake. It's not real soft in your mouth. It's you. It, so many people, especially like, say, in South America, you've, eat, you've, eaten, you've eaten marlin. You probably just don't know it. Um, they did a survey one time in the, in the mainland U.S. back before there was an import, and uh, it was a shockingly high number of, uh, of, of fish that, that blue marlin was replaced for unknowingly to the customer. So you have definitely probably experienced it, or some of the people listening have experienced it, and not known it all right great question thank you let's see let's see um now oh, this is probably oh well this is a nice one this is from grander marlin sport fishing okay what is the best at home substitution for lube if one runs out well that's a great question okay what is the best at home substitution for lube if one runs out. Well, he must be talking about fishing equipment because otherwise he wouldn't be sending this to my podcast. Okay, what is the best at-home substitution for lube if one runs out? Well, the only thing I can say to that, my friend, is preparation is key uh, in any fishing situation. So I would say prepare, 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 and always have lube around your house. I guess whenever it is you're servicing, whether you're servicing a real or whatever else needs attention at your house. Kurt H. Referring to your Thanksgiving stuffing post. Have you ever found plastic or any anything man-made in the stomachs of fish? Yes, I most certainly have. I most certainly have. It's not a subject that is particularly great because I don't want to get people turned off. But uh, one fish that I find lots and lots and lots of plastic in and it's quite depressing is Mai Mai. In fact, I have found plastic where it is growing right out of the side of Mai Mai. Um, I think that uh, because of Mai Mai's natural attraction to floats they are particularly um, in trouble as far as uh, the effects of plastic and microplastics. Anyone that's watched a Mai Mai hunt for any amount of time We'll see them go up to something that's floating, bang it, and and they, they do that to knock off crabs, to knock off you know any kind of little things that they can get. Um, so, you know, I, I've seen these Mai Mai's just hit a floater, something floating, over and over and over again, and then literally eat the stuff as it's falling off it. And so, I think their natural attraction to these floating things um, is definitely hurting their their species big time. Uh, I would say we probably are also experiencing some overfishing with them um, because I somewhere they're being overfished or, and or, um, maybe it really is just the plastics are devastating them. But yes, yep, sadly, without a doubt, I see lots of plastic in my mys. And I also see way, 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 way less my mys than when I started fishing um, not only here, but just generally kind of around the world in sport fishing applications as well. Maybe some people can chime in on that. But, you know, I can remember even Costa Rica, um, you know, when I fished down there, there was a lot of my mys. And then when I went back uh, not too long ago, all the guys I talked to, they're like, "Nah, yeah, man, they're not really here like they used to be. So, um, yes. Yes, plastic in fish, without a doubt. Uh, tunas, not so much, but I... um I did have one big eye tuna that I recall that had some plastic in its stomach, but of of all the ones that I have gill and gutted, and I have gill and gutted thousands, uh, especially because at nighttime uh, we recycle any fresh squid, so we cut over open everyone. I have found very little plastic in the tunas, and I think part of that is probably because they spend so much of their life down deep. Like interesting thing about big eye tunas is they only actually spend seven to eleven percent of their time uh, near the surface. So when you're actually catching a big guy near the surface, it's a really small part of their life. So I would say that's probably part of it, even though we know that microplastics are going further and further down into the water column. I think my mice are particularly uh, sensitive to that because there's so much bigger plastic on the top there. And they and I think not even just when they're hitting it, um, the way they forage, they see plastic on the surface and they're going to swallow it. So I think that. They're in trouble from the plastic, probably more than any fish. Great question, Kurt H. Uh, Trent. Not really a question, but it would be much appreciated if you could talk about some time. If you could, if you could take some time to talk about fellow fisherman Uncle Bruce from Hawaii Kai. He used to run the longboat Hoku out of Honolulu. Could you talk a little about how guys met him, your friendship, and time spent on the water fishing Mahalo. He used to go commercial eco fishing, eco fishing. With my father back in the '90s, only a handful of stories though. Okay, well, Trent, this is a uh, this is a hard subject. So basically, Trent is asking me to speak about Bruce Facuta. Bruce Fakuda is a legendary fisherman who I fished next to for many years, and I now own his boat. Um, Bruce's Bruce is not currently fishing, and it's probably not my place to say why, but. I can tell you I'll try and stay like I always do on some positive sides of stories Uh, Bruce was an excellent fisherman very very good fisherman he was very well known fishing around Hilo Uh, he caught lots of big fish and at one time he was uh, business partners with a gentleman named Mike Sir and they purchased the boat that I currently own that's the Vicious Cycle back then it was known as the Hoku Uh, they bought it from oh his name's escaping me right now I feel bad because I do know him um but that boat was kind of legendary. It was uh, well before my time. That boat was well known. Bruce was a very very good fisherman. Uh, Bruce had a absolute, um, uh, you know, just infectious laugh. He would just laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh on on the radio. But I think some of his biggest laughs were fucking with me in the beginning of my career. Um, I was very very naive when I first started fishing um, out out on the sea mountain as far as honesty and just Hawaii in general so I came from a place in New England where um, the group that I worked with was all very very um kind of honest about what they did or just or we just didn't talk like there was just subjects you didn't take like so like you just kind of or or you were secretive by nature and people wouldn't ask but when we got to Hawaii people kind of talked on the radio but people kind of all lie to each other. And so like, it's kind of a messed up thing. So I very naively in the beginning believed everything he was telling me. And I would go on these wild goose chases where he would tell me there was birds way out here or way out there, or he was just taking a break or he was focusing on the long line and he would give me some numbers to go check. And I would drive three miles this way and there'd be nothing. And then I would drive three miles the other way and there'd be nothing. And, uh, I was, you know, and it's just like, you know, birds and fish move and yada, yada, yada. And so um, he was pretty relentless about that. Um, but one time Bruce told me about the sideband channel, him and his buddy Mike talked on, on the single sideband channel. And I know that he forgot that he told me. And I think, honestly, I think he may have been in a, um, in a different state when he told me. And I never ever chimed in on this radio once. But man, I will tell you what, I learned the most about people and the most about fishing by just keeping my mouth shut and listening to what those two were talking about on the channel. There was so many times I heard them say things that broke my heart because they would say terrible things behind my back and then they would be really nice to me on the radio. And I always took that forward dealing with them that I knew that on one radio, They were just straight up nasty. I was just this howly kid. And then on the other radio, oh, check it in. How's it going? So I learned a lot about life and and about that. So um, again, legendary fisherman. And uh, I will never take that away from him, but certainly did not treat me particularly well with our dealings. Um, Very nice to my face, but unfortunately very nasty behind my back. So hard one, great fisherman. I'll leave it at that. Great, great fisherman. Um, Hopefully, he will again fish someday. Let's see. Um, That one has nothing to do with fishing, even slightly. Okay, this is from Sawyer. Let's hear about the weirdest thing you have ever found floating offshore. Let's hear about the weirdest thing you have ever found floating offshore. Ooh, the weirdest thing I have ever found floating offshore. Well, I found some weird ones. I found a giant squid. That was pretty weird. And stank all the high heaven. And uh, at the time, there was these reward signs all over the place. Reward, giant squid. Reward, 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 reward. And uh, I was actually with Captain Eric Rusnak. And uh, we brought this thing in. And, uh, you know, it was kind of in pretty bad shape. And it just absolutely reeked the high, high heaven. So we brought this thing in and we've been seeing this reward for this giant squid. So we bring this giant squid in and um, we call the guy, we call the guy, we call the guy. We finally get a hold of this guy and uh, he's on vacation. He says, no, nah, I'm sorry, I don't want it. I'm like, and I've seen these things forever. I'm like, you don't want this squid. He's like, no. So now we've got this rotten ass squid. And uh, I said, well, fuck it. You know, I'm like, what are we gonna do with this thing? It was like a Friday afternoon. So we threw it in the harbor which I'm sure now is illegal. I don't know. I I don't think it was at the time back then because, like, today you can't throw fish in the harbor. But back then, every single fish was filleted and thrown in the harbor. This is quite a while ago, years and years ago. But uh, the one thing I discovered about giant squid is that uh, it is apparently, like, the turtle's favorite thing on Earth to eat because we threw this thing in the harbor and, like, you know, sometimes you see four or five or, You know, six turtles together, maybe a few more, like if if you had a carcass. I tell you what, we must have had every fucking turtle on the West Hawaiian coast there. You couldn't even count how many turtles showed up that were ripping this thing apart behind the boat. Like, the next day, there was just like, like... It was like a convention. It looked like a traffic jam. There were so many shells in the back corner of the harbor eating this giant squid. So, I would say that is probably the weirdest thing I ever found. Um... Aside from a human body, that's a different story altogether. I don't think that was the weirdest. That was just maybe the saddest. Okay. Um, Next thing we got. Let's see. Dan Fiora. I hope I'm pronouncing that last name right. F-I-O-R-E. What's your take, if any, on what would be considered a more artisanal style fishing like you do versus a production factory style fishing, purse saying, etc.? I know you're a big proponent of all fishermen, but curious how you feel about big guy versus small guy in regards to stock health in general. This is a great question. Imagine the give fishermen versus... General, imagine the give fishermen versus the environment. To be clear, I've been a marine diesel mechanic for 15 years, and I have worked on just about every style of commercial boat at some point, from pin hooking to gill netting to dragging. So I see where all these boats have a place, but I feel like a lot of guys that run more hand on rod and real operations versus netting tend to think of themselves a bit higher and mightier also if you if you're ever out of new york and want to get in on our canyon tuna fishing the invites there but i doubt it compares well that is a very 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 kind offer and i would certainly go there is one thing i can tell you about fishing fishing i love fishing on every level and all different places i still get excited with a rod in my hand even if it is the smallest fish. Uh, It's targeting. I have always said it is not the fish on the other end of the line that matters It's the action that happens because my belief is fishing in its purest form Isn't like an activity. It's just like a life. It's this beautiful connection directly to nature through rod So I will happily take that invite if i'm ever out that way Count me in. Okay, let's see uh person well I'm I'm highly anti tuna purse saning. I can't speak about like salmon fisheries and things like that because I think they have like really sustainable, um, really sustainable uh, herring fishery or um, of salmon fish, salmon fishing. Um, I can't even really speak about seining for um, bait that I would be out of place. I know that a lot of guys feel in certain areas that the um, that the seining and Definitely the pear trawlers um, have caused a lot of problems. I can't tell you this. Uh, my experience with the giant pear trawlers uh, up in New England, I have definitely seen places when I was a kid uh, where, you know, we would have great fishing and then these pear trawlers or, 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 or purse seiners would come in fishing for mackerel and herring and they would just absolutely devastate an area of its bait source and then everything else would go dead after that. You know, you'd have no bottom fish. And you'd have uh, you'd have no bottom fish, and you'd, and you'd have no tunas. They would just. So I I I think it's very clear that they would have a big effect. Um, again, it's not really my department, but what I can tell you from my own experience, uh, as far as tuna fishing goes, I don't believe that purse standing for tuna is sustainable at all, and um, I, I just don't believe that from what I've seen. The bycatch uh, is just way too high the amount of stuff that gets dumped is way too high um there's some shocking videos out there i i, I believe in all fishermen but uh you know if per was going to be considered sustainable i think they would have to be allowed to go fishing a lot less so um i i, I would say that the argument that is usually used for for uh for personating is that it's highly efficient and fuel versus hook and line. But to me, that's a real bullshit kind of answer because I mean, let's be honest, man, the great thing about hook and line fishing, and maybe this is why guys feel high and mighty on a little bit is that you have a really tight connection to the environment and not just your connection to the environment, but you lose like when you are sustainably fishing, you lose, you don't win every day. You know what I mean? Like you just, you know, it, we get to a giant pile of tuna sometimes and we can't catch a single fish. I mean, literally we can get to like an 80 ton pile and not catch a fish out of it. A purse seiner wraps up on that same pile. Those fish do not have the same outcome, you know? Um, so for me, I gotta say, I just don't believe. And, and, and part of that, it goes back to our society and our reflection, pardon me, uh, of, of what we think fish should be so many people think of like tuna fish, for example, in a can as a cheap product. And I will harp on this over and over again. Until we get the mainstream thinking that fish is a cheap product out of people's minds, we will forever be doomed to unsustainable and dirty practices because um, that's just where the price point is at, you know? So, uh, you know, you're going to be getting your fish from third world countries and other places where they don't have the regulations that are put on uh, say, like American fishermen um, that are trying to do it the right way. So, um, you know, I think that's, that's a big part of it as, as a as a uh, as a not as a culture. And it's and, 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 and to be fair, the U.S. is better than most. But we still kind of have this ugly, ugly black cloud that no one talks about. We uh, we praise doing stuff the right way. But then we fucking murder our own fishermen with imports um, you know, so we say the right thing, but then because it's a free market, uh, we, you know, we put all these, we put all these rules on, 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 on the fishermen, but then we, you know, then we, then we kill them with, uh, with imports. I mean, what, what, I mean, look at, well, okay, Hawaii's fine. I mean, Hawaii's a good example. I mean, there's more fish imported here. Um, you know, there, there's more fish imported here than that's caught here mainland U S is shocking between aquaculture and uh, between aquaculture and foreign imports. I, I've seen some numbers as high as 91%. Uh, but I've always seen that at like 80% of our seafood comes from outside sources than main, you know, U S fishermen while U S fishermen are being um, heavily regulated. Now, not to say that the regulations are wrong, but the problem is that we aren't properly tariffing or, taxing the people that are doing it wrong you know so uh, we may be doing it right but uh, unless we change how fish comes in as a commodity uh, we will continue on the world scale to do it wrong because we just you know in the U.S. the U.S. buys tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of, of, of this imported fish and, and harps you know, our great fisheries, but then kind of the dirty backdoor thing is that we are just pumping in all this stuff that is caught the wrong way. So I think we really need a big awakening in that department. So great question. I hope I answered it again. um, I'm looking forward to doing a canyon trip with you at some point. Thank you for the question. Let's see what we got. Uh, Tyler Shump. Shemp, man, I'm bad with names. Tyler, S-C-H-U-M-P, what do you think fisheries will be like for future generations, and how can we be more responsible now? Great question. You know, it's really good that I I think there's a bit of awakening going on. I think the younger fishermen, what is left of them, are a little bit wiser. I think one thing we're going to have going forward, though, is that we still have old fishermen that control a lot of these uh, councils and boards, and they don't give a fuck, man. Like, you talk to them, they don't have any romance with the sea, especially, it's like, I don't even want to say that's fishermen. I would say it's the people that are in charge of these things. They don't give a shit what's best about the sea. At the end of the day, they, they're they just talking bottom line. Um, what do the future of fisheries look like? This is a great question. This is something I think about all the time. And um, it's a really hard one. Uh, I think in the U.S., if we're on the current trend we're on, I think you will continue to probably see them diminish because we praise, you know, like local. We, 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 we praise, you know, supporting local, but then most people spend with a budget. So the thing is, is, and you know, good fish isn't cheap and cheap fish isn't good. So I think uh, unless we have some kind of real awakening about supporting local fisheries, I think most of them will slowly die. You will see the bigger organizations continue to get bigger and the little man will just fade out. I mean, we already see that in almost every fishery today. Um, You know, corporate gets, you know, corporate guys buy, you know, bigger and bigger boats. Next thing you know, the next generation can never afford to get into them. You can't make a living. The next guy, the younger guys, can't make a living on deck uh, because of where the price point of stuff is. So they're not going to be future captains. Um, I would say the future of the fisheries is not awesome if we don't change. Uh, if we don't change the the outlook, if we don't get really really smart um, about uh, about marketing the right way, we really need people to understand where their fish is coming from, and why it's worth paying the extra dollar. Um, I was on a podcast last night, and I cannot emphasize enough that the best story in Hawaii is the local caught fish. And I'm not even talking me, I'm talking the guys, the next step in, the trolling guys, the handline guys, um, the uncles that are going out there, the young guys that are doing it right out of smaller boats. That is the story we should be telling. That is the fish people should be buying. I think one problem that faces these fisheries is that a lot of times fishermen get so caught up in their own little beefs that they don't look at the big picture. I think that if you could get every fisherman to work together, it would be so much better. But having gone now to these meetings for like 15 years and sometimes I'm the only guy who shows up, um, there is a big mentality out here that uh, – there's a big mentality that that nothing's going to change. We can't do anything and i would agree with you that that probably was the case for a long time but i think with social media now you can do so much to get the message out that i i think if we're going to turn it around uh, i think if we're going to turn it around i think fishermen need to kind of kind of need to break out of that mold a little bit going forward and say hey Let's do what's right here for everyone so there's still a future. I mean, I'd like to think honestly that one of the reasons I'm talking right now is because I truly do care about fishing, which I do. And it would be an absolute shame for me if fishing didn't continue. Um, so I think it's a tough road ahead. Um, I think now is the time to act. I would think, especially after COVID, uh, when there was so many different uh, discussions about um you know, sourcing food and things like that. Um, I think now's the time to act. I would also say that we probably need to admit that certain fisheries have gotten too good at what they do. And we may need to honestly look at scaling back some of those. Again, I know an older fisherman's cringing hearing that, but sometimes you got to admit, you guys were great. You nailed it. You got so good at it that you're almost just too good at it. So, um... Again, that's not everyone. I'm super pro fishing. Um, I am super pro-fishing. I am super pro-doing it the right way. Um, but I think we really do need to be conscious about what the right way is. And I think we need to get into more people's homes. I would love to see some kind of big marketing campaign. Um, so few people really understand where their fish comes from, especially in Hawaii. Like I... I I I just can't can't harp this enough. I I, I you know I I would like to really to be some kind of local campaign and I I mean I would be happy to help promote it, but I'm just not the right guy to run it. I'm gone too much offshore. Um but I think you need to have someone that you know that works with, you know, like a group maybe like with works with a Kona fish. They're great. They're my current buyer. Very very happy with them. They've been great for us. Um you know, I, I I think it might need someone like that to help coordinate, like, you know, maybe there's a, a like a sustainable label, like or some type of label that, and, and there's a, there's a code of ethics that the fishermen that are in this co-op or in this group that works with like say Kona fish, something like that, um, that they abide by like, you know, minimal bycatch or next to no bycatch, no marine mammal interaction, you know, I'll list all the reasons why the inshore fish are better. And, it, and it honestly, it does not take long when you start writing with a pen why the inshore fisheries are better. And that story, I think, needs to be told. Now, I know most fishermen don't want to do that. That's a whole other job. They just want to drop their fish off. And it wouldn't take a whole lot of face time if you worked with a group like with, like, say, Kona fish, Hilo fish. Um, you know. But what it would take is less fighting in between fishermen and say, hey, whether we want to admit it or not, we really are a brethren here and we need to work together or we are going to be the last of our kind. So that's my take on that. I hope I answer that question. Um, I hope that I hope that uh, the right story can be told and I hope the right story can move forward. Great question. Let's see. Thoughts of Force versus Radden's podcast question. Okay, well... I don't know enough about forces. I have not spent any serious amount of time on them. Um, at Radins. I spent lots and lots of time on my big raddin. I had a 41-foot raddin, which really didn't perform like any of the other ones. I loved that boat absolutely dearly. This is what I can say about boats. I think uh, the more love you put in, the more love you get out. And so I wish I had a better answer for you on that, but I think... Uh, Whatever gets you out there, whatever gets the job done, doesn't matter how pretty it is, doesn't matter how fast it goes, if it makes you happy and or makes you money, that's the right boat for you. Great question, Trevor. Mike Hawkins. Would be interesting to throw out who is the founder of Green Sticking in Kona? I know Shibata brought it in, but what local captain? I would be curious to hear the answers. Okay, so I, I have gotten so many Green Sticking questions. Then I'm going to get someone in here that can really, really, really answer that well. I know some amazing stories about Billy Ross um, catching some obscene number. Whether that was really the first day, I've heard Kerwin. So I I am going to tell you what. I have have heard a lot of hearsay, but I will get somebody on this podcast that can answer that 100% fully for you. Mike, no problem. But I wish I had a better answer, but I will get you the right guy on this podcast Eventually. Um, how I find? I don't. Okay. I honestly, I'm going to have to go back. I'm not sure what this question is asking. I think. Maybe the message got sent out of order. I will go back to that one. I don't want to read that one wrong. We are in the request. Let's see. Accept this. This is from Jimmy Morrow. Biggest Marlin you have ever seen around Hawaii and the story behind it. Or a huge Marlin story while commercial fishing. Well... There is unquestionably only one fish that stands out in my mind in that department. On the Sea Mountain, we're very lucky to see large fish on a regular basis and very unlucky to see large marlin on a regular basis. The marlin are actually a fucking huge problem sometimes. When I'm marlin fishing, I love catching marlin. But when I'm tuna fishing, I honestly don't want anything to do with a large marlin. A small one, yes, I want to harvest it. A large one, not. There was a fish, and I actually wrote about this fish in my upcoming book that's coming out in may that i am called scarback and scarback is a fish that took up a short residence on the cross seamount but has taken up a permanent residence in my mind that fish has haunted me for many many years but not in a bad way um that fish was just a next level type fish and uh I will give you the 30-second one because this is probably one of the, well, it's not going to be 30 seconds, but I'll give you a recap because this is probably what I would consider one of my best fishing stories, if not my most humbling moment ever on the ocean. And um, the long story short on this, and, and honestly, it's, it's a 10,000-word uh, chapter. So uh, I will just tell you this. I had a fish of ridiculous proportions come up beside the side of the boat one day. Um when it initially came up, I actually thought we were on this big pile of tunas that wouldn't bite. It was probably about like an 80-ton pile, it just refused to bite, refused to bite. And all of a sudden the danglers are our, are our our, our our baits hanging on the side of the boat, the 12-inch the, the rubber squid hanging off the side of the boat, they all started to erupt. It's all 60 to 90 pound big eyes just committing suicide. And uh then I see this big, big black shape come up, and I'm like, oh, son of a fucking bitch. I'm like, Oh, it's a fucking killer whale, a false killer whale or a pirate whale. The thing is just massive. And I'm thinking like, I thought, ah, because I had kind of suspected that maybe these tunas weren't biting um, because this whale, because there was whales around. So I think, oh, fuck, here we go. And But then as I look, I couldn't say anything else. Like, I'm just, I was dumbfounded. I was just, all I could say is, look, 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 Like, I couldn't get another word out. And this fucking marlin appears. It just this sea creature comes up grabs a 90 pound ahi off the dangler like full speed and thunk! it just pops it off with like little more than just the slightest effort it just absolutely inhaled this 90 pound fish it cracked the uh, 700 pound monofilm at the dangler hang off like it was just nothing and the the water around the boat had just turned jet black which is often the case with when a marlin drives a school up and into the boat. But normally they're smaller fish. They're not normally these bigger like 60 to 90. So the, the boat is just fucking shaking like it's hitting bottom. And the, the props are just tuna blendering. One fish after another. It's fucking out of control. And then nothing. Total silence. Just nothing. There's no tunas. There's no fucking marlin. And I said to the crew, I said, You guys will never, ever, ever, ever see that again. And the one thing I've learned in my life is that the ocean loves to humble us. So we kept, I I was just like dumbfounded and we literally just kept going down sea at dangling speed, which is like, in that case, it was probably like a knot and a half, you know, maybe three knots. We were, we were slightly going down sea. We were just basically just in gear. And all of a sudden the fucking danglers all start exploding again. Just all the same fish, you know, like 60 to 90 pounders going off, like, No part of me ever expected for those tunas to start biting again. Like, they just came back. They were gone off the screen. They came back. Uh, No part of me expected those tunas to come back. So we're yanking one tuna over the side. I mean, I never expected those tunas to come back, and I definitely never expected to see this marlin come back. And so this time the marlin comes up underneath the boat. Same thing again. We are just running over tunas, just one after another, getting out of this thing's way. And I had just pulled over a tuna, like a 60 pounder on the dangle right in front of me. This thing's slow motion comes up. The first time it showed us like how powerful it was. The second time this fish comes up like all calculated, grabs this ahi, probably around like an 80 pounder, grabs it and does like a head shake, like and just rips this thing's face. It didn't break the leader this time, it just pulled the hook out of it. And this And, and this marlin, like instinctively all I could do was I just reached out to try and touch its fin. It was so close. I mean, it was like, it was on the on an outside danger. So I mean, maybe it's like three feet. I reached over just trying to grab this conning tower of a fin because I couldn't even like register what the hell I was seeing. Like, I mean, so this thing just swam off and I, I'll just never forget, it like faded out of sight and it had just eaten a 90 pounder. I saw it blow it away and this fish comes up and, and, and it, it, it takes off and the water is just crystal clear. It's just like, and I watched this thing just swim away with this like 80 pounder hanging out of its mouth like a dog of bone. It was just the fucking most amazing. And I have I haven't ever seen a fish that's even within slightly the size of that fish. I saw that fish um, on the next trip as well, but it never got that close again. It got like 10 feet away. And it had uh, what I should mention is it had these two huge scars on its back. Where it actually looked like maybe it had been on someone's flying gaffs before and it ripped off, or that it like had either from you know, from tuna blending or at some point. The thing long story short is the the fish looked like it got in a fight with the boat and, a, and and the boat lost. This fish was just incredible. Like, and people have asked me, they said, Well, how big do you think it was? And I said, I just couldn't even put a number on it. It would just sound so so ridiculous. This fish was just incredible. And I remember thinking when that fish swam away That just some fish weren't meant to be caught And that was one of them That fish was just absolutely, absolutely amazing fish That is without a doubt the biggest fish I have ever seen Let's see Next question I don't know, this thing just kind of bumped me out Good question, Jimmy Okay. All right this Man wants to remain anonymous, so he will remain anonymous. Miss, okay, I have to accept his message so we can see what it's all about. Okay, Kenton, I love your podcast, thank you very much. I'm from Maui and I currently work for NOAA as a marine engineer and spend a lot of my life on the ocean. I had a question on marine berets, specifically floating fads. My buddy and I. Fish the North Shore of Maui when I'm home, and twice we found these specific buoys, once out of, okay, I'm not going to mention that. I don't want to give the other ones, okay, I'm not going to mention that. That's location. I don't want to step on anyone's toes. <clears throat> I don't want to step on anyone's toes, but my main question to you is, do a lot of fishermen use them in Hawaii? What are your thoughts on fads? Have you seen one of these before? The one we found looked like it was manufactured in Spain. From the research I did, it seemed this buoy could have been used... For Persane fishing as a satellite buoy. Thanks for taking the time. You want to remain anonymous? Absolutely no problem. Okay, so the buoy sent is a picture of an ore buoy. And the marking on it, 546874. That from my that, my friend, is a persane float. That would be, I'm pretty sure from the numbers, that would be from American Samoa. So what he's got here is a drifting fad. And so the fishery. Uh, down close to the equator, uses these um, fads. And for those of you who don't know at home, that's a fish aggravate device. Basically, they throw things in the water uh, to attract fish, and then they will um, take their purse seine, and they will literally go around it and catch every last fish that's there, good, bad, and the ugly. Um, They have a lot of bycatch because of that. You know, they catch a lot of sharks. They catch a lot of undesired fish, juvenile fish, things they don't want to catch that get... um, in the net. So, uh, good question. Um, do many guys use that type of buoy around Hawaii? Uh, we used to, um, they have kind of fallen a little bit out of fashion, that style or buoy. Um, the one he sent a photo of has a solar panel on it. Um, one thing is the company that made those, they have moved most of their effort into, um, they have put most of their effort into actually looking for, uh, we're looking for water in the desert for like farming, like in the Middle East. So their satellites are kind of used for other stuff. They've kind of tried to phase out that service, but they have so many of them that they uh, continue to keep that program going. If you ever saw, and I have seen this, when I met with the, uh, the sales rep for, for those back in the day when I used them, the amount of those that was in the Pacific, especially he had a computer where it showed all of them, uh, especially on the equator where the majority of them are, uh, you would throw up probably. It is shocking. There are thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of those out there, whether they're being actively fished or lost. So when you find one up here, what has happened is that it has gotten too far. It's a rogue. They try to keep them in a certain certain um, area. But what has happened if you found them around Hawaii, in that case like a drifting fad, Um, it has gotten too far away from the area that the boat works. And so they just call, they just write it off as a loss. They've got, you know, they might literally, they're, they're supposed to have, I think now I've seen different numbers in different fisheries, you know, I've seen like some have a hundred, some have 20, there's supposed to be a number, a limited number of how many they actually have, but that fishery has actually got a lot of piracy and things like that where guys cut off each other's buoys. So if you find a fad that looks just like that, like just a buoy and it's got nothing attached, it likely was just cut off and the uh, competing boat stuck that in. Uh, That style buoy uh, probably didn't cost them that much money. I mean, it would be a lot of money for most people, but big operations like that, they used to be like two grand, but if you bought them in bulk, they got down to being like as cheap as like $400. For the most part, the new buoys are around like $600. So that's just like a collateral loss for—just uh, collateral damage for big operations like that. Next question. Are there a lot of the, a lot of fads around Hawaii? Yes. Yes. There's lots. I couldn't begin to tell you the actual number, but uh, um, I try to stay out of the fad game. I find them all the time, not looking for them. Uh, they are routinely put on our commute over the years. I have now actually run over three— uh, bad enough to shut down my engines in the middle of the night because the person who set them, um, got the depth wrong with the ratio of floating rope to sinking rope. Um, and so that can be a huge problem or they grossly over, um, guess the depth, the right ratio for those of you wondering is 30% to 30% sinking to 70% floating the sinking being on the top, and then whatever you're using for a chain, something like that. I personally don't throw fads anymore. I would be lying if I said I hadn't in the past, but I have uh, stopped doing that for a number of years for a couple of reasons. But the main one, um, which most people probably don't realize, is because I have gotten super into beach cleanups, and that's a hobby that I've enjoyed uh, doing, particularly with my children on our days off. I enjoy cleaning the beach. And one day, I was at the beach cleaning up stuff, and I found... A bunch of shit that I had thrown in the ocean. And I thought, wow, that is really fucked. Here I am spending my free time cleaning the beach and I am literally adding to the problem. So for my own environmental footprint, I stopped throwing fads. Um, I don't judge anyone. I understand there's super, super effective. Every fishery has a plus and minus to it. Again, it's not that they don't work. It just doesn't fit with my environmental footprint. So I personally stopped doing it Um, They can be a very effective way of catching fish. Um, Yes, there's lots of them around, no doubt. We have a couple minutes left on this before I have to stop because it only lets me do an hour at a time on this. So let's see what the next question is, or maybe we just stop this here. What do we got? You know what I'm going to do? I am, I'm just going to stop this and we're going to start over because all of the, I see all these questions and every one of these would take way too long for me to give these people a satisfactory answer. So we'll just take a little break and we'll come back. Okay, we are back. I figured I better take a little break there, poured myself another drink. Uh, This is again, Kenton Gear with the Vicious Cycle podcast, Whiskey, Women and Water. Although, the only thing we have right now is whiskey. So, let's talk about the other subjects. All right. I really enjoy your page, thank you. The photos are fantastic. Please keep the stories coming, thank you. I also need to know, do you sell your Vicious Cycle t-shirts anywhere? Uh, That is a great question. Honestly, I probably should be in the t-shirt business because people seem more impressed with my uh, my t-shirts than anything else. I'll tell you what I'm doing right now. This is myth321. Uh, If you DM me, I will send you one, and uh, give me your size, and uh, your address, and I will send you a shirt. That's probably, uh, yeah, I'm not really prepared to sell them, but if you want me to send you one, I will. If you want to send me something in return, great. If not, enjoy the shirt. Okay, next question. Um... Joey Nine, I believe that's how you put but that might be New York or New Year's Eve, I don't know. Joseph NYE, I'm gonna go with Joseph Nine, I think. Would a background in commercial seafood processing make it easier to get a job on a boat? Uh, I would think that would really depend on what type of boat job you are looking to get. But I think the number one thing for any job on a boat these days is A, the ability to show up, and B, the willingness to learn i think the biggest problem any new person finds on a boat is that they come in with a um, preconceived idea of how things are going to go and the reality is most of the time when you show up to a boat there are, are there's already a set system or a way that the captain slash owner has set up and they've been previously successful for uh, so my suggestion would be to walk the docks because no one ever does that anymore. I can't even tell you the last time I actually had someone come up to me and show interest versus sending a message. Uh, a lot of times guys send me messages and then I give them a response back saying, well, they can't even be, you know, telling them the, you know, the pros and cons. A lot of times they send me a thumbs up or they don't even reply. I can just see they've read it and then they don't write back. Well, if you don't even have the energy to write me back a reply after I've just taken 15 minutes to respond to you I don't think you're probably going to work out in the work ethic department that we are looking for on board so I would say the best thing for a commercial fishing job show up to the docks have a uh, open mind and I can tell you that a a hard worker is much more important uh, than physical strength if you want to do the job hard enough you'll get there Um, but attitude is everything And I think that is the uh, right answer on that. 90% of life is showing up. So if you want to be on a commercial fishing boat, I suggest you show up. Next question. Let's see. This is from Nick, Team Sea Monkeys. Hi, Nick. Are the blue marlin in Hawaii migrating from somewhere to Japan? Are the fish transient or local? Is marlin a sustainable fishery in Hawaii? Oh, this is a huge question. And a good one. Are um, the blue marlin... Well, okay, so when you're talking about marlin, is our fishery sustainable? Well, when you talk blue marlin, yes, our fishery is sustainable. Um, all the numbers kind of back that up, that, that that that's a strong fishery. And you know what's also happened with blue marlin? Um, is that blue marlin aren't anywhere near as susceptible to the longline fishing as... Uh, some of the other species, like striped marlin, which get devastated by the longline gear, and so that's part of it. Is that the blue marlin is such a hardy fish that they have a much much higher survival rate, particularly like the bigger fish. Um, from my my experience, longlining for the most part, you catch an occasional big marlin longlining, like a big blue, but for the most part, they absolutely kick the gears ass and they just keep going. They just fucking ruin your day for the most part. So. Blue marlin, definitely. Uh, The other thing that has happened, uh, particularly the charter boat fleets here in Hawaii, used to kill a lot of blue marlin. uh, And, you know, nothing wrong with that. But uh, the general consciousness in sport fishing has generally gone towards catch and release. And so um, most fish are released now. I believe the last figure I saw, uh, the Kona fleet, which was kind of notorious for killing the most, I believe they're actually at over 90%. Uh, Catch and release now. So the blue number and blues are really strong. Blues have a really, really strong survival rate. So I would say that the blue marlin fishing, I don't think you should have any problems feeling bad about shooting a blue marlin or harvesting a blue marlin or I I say shooting because he's got fish in his uh, profile. I would have no problem harvesting a blue marlin once in a while. I don't think you have any issue with that. Uh, As far as migration of blues, I'm not the greatest guy to talk to about that. Um, because everything I have ever seen shows that the fish get tagged and they go in every which direction. Now, part of that, and I don't know if this is also the case with blue Marlin, but my experience when I have been sticking satellite tags in shark is that when you stick a satellite tag in the shark, they immediately fuck off at least for a short while. You definitely change their patterns. And it's also kind of part of my belief that those tags may ultimately be the best thing that happens for fishermen. Um, not because they're showing where they're going, but I think this is, I'm just putting this out here, but just from my own thoughts, if you could get some kind of tag, I don't know if it'd be biodegradable or, um, it doesn't even necessarily be a tag, but it would be something that you would put in the shark's skin when you caught it, instead of shooting it, it would effectively get rid of the shark for your needs, and the shark would also maintain its life. Because out of all these sharks I've been tagging recently, and I've been tagging a lot, um, they don't stick around. You stick a tag in them, they shoot off. I actually was talking to, um, I don't want to butcher his name, but Dr. Uh, Mike uh, it's Dokmer? Dockmer? Do-meyer? I feel terrible. It's D-O-C-U-I-M-E-R, Docmer. And uh, about a different thing uh, recently, uh, I was talking to him about some striped marlin work he had done. And uh, he had said the same thing that he felt that, you know, the initially right after the tagging, uh, the fish took off. Now I'm getting on a side subject there, but, um, anyways, I think you should have no problem being okay with harvesting a blue marlin now and then around Hawaii, no problem. Uh, And as far as where they actually go, uh, I guess where I was going with that is I think that maybe with the satellite tags, at least the initial beginning. might be a little bit off because they're running, so I don't know how long it takes for them to get back into their normal patterns. Because a lot of times, like you, you'll see them and it, it, like they'll tag ten blue marlin from the same spot, and they kind of go in every direction. Um, but that's a great subject, and I'm going to get somebody on the show who can really tell us, or they could at least tell us a believable version of what's happening. Uh, then you ask. The fish are not local. They are definitely they are definitely transient. They go all over the world. Where they really go, um, some good question marks there. But I will get you an expert to answer that question. And then, is marlin a sustainable fishery? Well, definitely the blue marlin is. the The unfortunate answer is on our favorite eating one, striped marlin, is not. We have proven that. That's pretty well documented. There's there's two uh, biomasses of fish. There is the uh, the western stock, which is basically a, a group of striped marlin that lives around Hawaii and Japan. And then there's a, the eastern Pacific stock that is closer to, um, you know, that, that, that's that really strong group of fish that we see, uh, that, you know, you see, you know, Southern California, the, uh, the Baja Peninsula, and that, that goes down. Uh, where you see really strong fishing to this day they're not in trouble over there they're in a lot of trouble around hawaii Um, that is a very hot uh, subject matter they're definitely in trouble they're threatened i think anyone who's fished around here for any amount of time will tell you that the average size striped marlin is smaller and the catch is less Uh, i try to actually release every striped marlin i catch but um you know everyone i can uh trolling or uh I try to let them all go at this point, even though they are the most valuable marlin, generally speaking, although not so much recently. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there was a very well-intended uh, plan. It was uh, basically there was this billfish plan um, with the uh, that banned Hawaii uh, uh, exporting marlin to the mainland U.S. And so... In theory, that was a really good idea to help save marlin. But the actuality is they haven't really saved any marlin because you know the 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 major uh, the major players, the guys who catch the majority of the marlin, are the longliners. And unfortunately, um, you know, I I think this number is going to be heavily debated. But you know, even at the most recent thing I've seen, at least forty two percent of them. you know, so 42 or was it 48, 48, 48% of them, uh, 48% of them are alive when they get to the boat. So that means 52% of them are already dead. And, uh, the, and so right off the bat, you know, they're, that number of them is dead anyways. So that those fish are coming to the dock, they're coming in and they're going to be sold. And so, the fish are still coming to the dock, but the market value is really bad. Like, I've seen it as bad as $0.10 cents on the auction. Uh, fortunately, not over in Kona, where they really have done a great job of taking care of the local fishermen. But, you know, on the block where they're just dealing with so much um, – they're dealing with so much volume, and there's no outlets for it like there used to be, particularly with no tourists following COVID, 10 20 $0.30 cents is pretty common. Um, I don't know. I think these days – I think these days if you get over a dollar on a striped marlin, uh, you're pretty happy. And uh, back in the day, I can remember them going, I've seen them as high as like crazy numbers, like $13, 14 $15 a pound back to the fishermen, routinely 5 $6. So uh, well-intentioned planned on that one, but I think in reality it hasn't saved any marlin. So that's kind of unfortunate because, you know, I'm not anti-longlining, but the thing I am is I'm extremely anti-waste, and so I just hate the idea of dumping uh you know of dumping a dead marlin i i mean and admittedly i have like an emotional attachment so like i love marlin i just do and so i I, sometimes when i have these conversations i need to step back and we make make sure i'm making a reasonable thing here like where i'm saying like okay is is it because i am so emotionally attached to marlin that i'm freaking out over them dumping dead ones or is that just what's truly wrong you know because the plans they're looking at right now unfortunately what would happen is that uh some of the plans that are on the table is that they, they would, uh, when we get to our quota, we have, I guess what I should backtrack a little bit is that there is a quota coming down the line. The the stock has 100% been determined that it is overfished. And so there is a quota coming down the line um, that the US is going to have to fish because uh, and basically what the current plans I just recently heard they're doing is talking about when they get to that quota, then no more retention. But the problem with that, in my opinion, and, and why that's not a great system, and why we need to be proactive, is that we already know that you know fifty percent, which is called fifty percent of the fish are coming up dead, right? So it's half the marlin are already dead. So if you've already hit the number, that's your quota. In reality, you're going well over that because you've got the X amount that we know are dead, and then we also know that um, the you're going to have some that are considered live that are going to die. I had talked to an observer recently and the actual what is considered a live release, he told me is not real pretty, uh, that, you know, if the fish even it's tails moving or it's got some color. So I think they really need to figure out, uh, <clears throat> what to do with the situation, whether that means, nope. Whether that means you just can't, uh, I don't know. I don't really know. I don't know the answer because at the end of the line, the thing that's going to answer this is money. It's not going to be what's truly best for the fish because if we did what was truly best for the fish, well, obviously we would just stop fishing, right? I mean, if you can't throw a piece of gear in the water without killing a threatened species, I mean, the most truly sustainable thing would be to stop fishing. But that's just not going to happen. There's too many players. There's too much money uh, involved where that's just not going to happen. So I think we need to find... A better idea of what to do with it. I don't. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. I, I. I. For me, because I have a love for marlin, the idea of, you know, just stopping fishing when you hit that limit makes sense to me because I can justify um, that I don't want to see these marlin dumped dead. But you know, you just have so many people that are invested in this fishery that don't actually. Handle the fish. They don't wake up with the sun. They don't go to bed with the sea in their back. It's just a financial decision to them. They don't really care, you know. Like they might say they do, but you know, they don't. Because if you did care what was truly best for the fish, then you'd stop when you got to that point where, when you got to the point where you're killing them, like when you get to the point where you hit that quota, you would just stop, right? I mean, that that that's my take on it. It's not a popular view, but again. Not anti-longlining, but we need a better we need a better solution than uh than getting to the quota and then we just let them all go because we already know letting them all go means that you're letting half dead, which and if you're already over the quota, I don't really know how that could could actually be count because if you know that half is dead, then you're actually going way over your quota. So does that get charged to the next year's quota? I don't know how they'll figure that out. That's that is a very very difficult question but at the end of the day i just hope they can figure out something where a beautiful fish does not get fed to the sharks because that is the biggest shame at all i'm it's a beautiful eating fish and uh hopefully they can find a solution that's a win for the fishermen and a win for the fish Uh, let's see david angler aegler or agler david agler Yes, hello. I was just wondering if fluorocarbon is worth the money when going for ahi's. Also, what what pound line do you recommend? Thank you. Okay, well, for what I do, yes, fluorocarbon is one hundred percent worth the money. Some people may disagree with me, but I one hundred percent think it's worth money. It's worth the money in every application except for full speed trolling. Uh, I think if you're slow trolling, if you're doing anything with bait. I 100% think that fluorocarbon is well, well worth your money. That's my take on it. Some people don't feel that. I can tell you if you just are looking at traditional monofilament and you're talking tunas and you want to, um, you know, think fluorocarbon's out of your budget, but you want to catch more fish, stay away from clear line. If you're using a leader, if you have any choice from top to the bottom, my selection is blue line followed by pink, and oh my God, I pray that I don't have to use clear line because clear line and a side-by-side comparison when you are catching tunas off the surface sucks. It's like, it's amazing to me when you're feeding the tunas and how many times I, I think back and I've watched these fish where they just hit the brakes and I think, my God, all those years and those other fisheries using clear line and I just, I think like, God, it's just amazing how much better blue uh, fish is and then and then pink. And yep, I just... Clear line, I just think it's the worst. Uh, Interesting thing about pink line too. That's my favorite, fluorocarbon. I like that, Yozuri, you asked what brand... Oh, you didn't ask what brand. He didn't care what brand. What pound? Poundage. Well, that's adversely proportional to what equipment you're using and what size fish you're targeting. I mean, you can catch a giant bluefin on a 100-pound fluorocarbon, 130-pound fluorocarbon, if the hook's in the corner of mouth. So there's hook placement. There's going to be a trade-off on that every time. So... The lighter you go, the more bites you're going to get. Higher the chance of losing it. That, 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 that is the battle. Heavier the, heavier the line, higher ratio of catching it, less bites. That, that, that is kind of basic math on that one. That is only you can determine in your own fishery. But for me, for what I do, I always start heavy and then work my way down. I want to try and get the stupid fish. You show them light line first, you're locked in the light line. Because it just doesn't go down. It does, does. They don't work their way up. So for me, I and this is true for like all my fishing tactics. I show them. I show the the easiest way to catch fish first, and then I work back. Like I will never present my first ninja bait because if you do the stealthiest of things first, then you're locked into that. You know, if you're if you're if you're weeding off the stupid fish. I don't want to call them stupid, but the more aggressive fish. If you're weeding off the aggressive fish with your ninja stuff, right, then you can't work the other way, in my experience anyways. My opinion is always start heavy or always start bold and then work your way back. That's how I always recommend it. Put the uh, heavy stuff out first and then work your way to light. Don't go with light unless you want to always fish light in your fishing scenarios. That's my opinion. If you just want to go for bites, go light. You want to fight him forever, but if you're in the business of harvesting fish like me, don't start light. Go light once you've been rejected heavy. Next question. What do we got? Captain K is a caveman. Either way, the kids thought it was pretty cool. Uh, okay, this isn't a question. This is someone, this is my friend Kim sending me a message where I was trying to start a fire on the beach earlier with a coconut husk and a stick. I got it to smoke, but I was unsuccessful in my fire skills. Huh, sorry, Mr. this one is Sean Christopher. This one says, sorry I missed this. The, the world needed to know about the one time we wanted to talk to your old man into making us a custom bowling shoes for 10 pins in Rochester Cosmic Bowling. i not going to lie. Oh, this is Sean Mercer. I have no idea what the hell you're talking about, Sean. That was many years ago, but we did used to go Cosmic Bowling. Ah, Whatever happened with the binos? Great question. Okay, so a lot of people asked me. uh, I I normally use Fraser Optics. I love them. I use the the Mariners. Uh, I dropped them, or I put them down, I should say, and they went flying off, and I had to send them in for repairs. Uh, I throw gear in the water almost every trip, and so for me, I really can't afford not to have a pair of binoculars in case – Something pops or something breaks, uh, along you know, like if you break a piece of gear or just in general looking for birds. And so, um, in the downtime, I got a pair of um Fujian um uh, 1440s, uh, and uh, I wanted to give them a test and see the difference. A lot of people ask me, Well, how were they? How were they? How were they? Some people absolutely, absolutely love those binoculars. And uh, so I didn't really want to be too negative. But I'll tell you, if you're being really honest, my Frasers just absolutely blew them away for what I did. Uh, the week that I took them out, uh, it blew 25 to 35 every day. And the wind never came down. And um, just compared to what I'm used to by looking for a flag and, then, uh, and looking for at the same height of eye, they were almost two miles shorter than the Frasier's for the same height of eye that I normally find stuff. And I also found that in the heavy wind, they were nowhere near as good. So like most of the time I'm used to looking right into like, you know, 25, 30 knots. And I found that the the stabilizer uh, was nowhere near as good for my application. Now I know some people love them and so, I'm not taking away from them. I'm just saying in a side-by-side comparison, in my fishery, uh, they did not handle anywhere near as well as the Frasers did. So I think if you're asking me and if, if birds is your business as far as making money, um, I think the Frazier Optics are well worth it. In fact, I just paid $750 to get mine repaired, uh, half the price of another a brand new pair of those Fujions because I just wasn't overly impressed, to be honest. Um, The other thing I can say about the Fujians that was a huge letdown, I used as many batteries in one trip to keep the sharpness as I used in two months in my Frasers. Those things are starving for batteries. They just, in almost no time, um, you start to see a difference uh, in the batteries. Now, that being said, I will say, one thing is for the price, they're probably pretty good. Uh, The entry point on them... um, I think I paid when everything was said and done. I, I got the, uh, I got the insurance plan because a lot of people messaged me like, don't get them, don't get them, unless you get the insurance plan. And even the guy at West Marine's like, don't buy these things, they're real fragile unless you get the insurance plan. So I got them and they were like 1500 bucks with the insurance plan. So I guess uh, that, that's probably something to look out for. If everyone's telling you to get the insurance plan and even the person selling is telling you, I could see that as soon as I got them, they're really nice, like as far as being light, which was nice for my hurt shoulder. But uh, unfortunately, I feel like they really under, uh, really, really under compared to the Fraser Optics. So if you have the money, despite them being more, I highly recommend the Frasier because you will find fish with the Frasiers that will, the bird piles, or you'll either find fish jumping or bird piles that will quickly make up the difference of that few grand if you take fishing anywhere as seriously as I do. Let's see. This one is. I thought you might be want to be anonymous. Ah, uh, here's a great question. I get this question all the time, and uh, so this is a hard one for me to answer. Kind of. Uh, he's asking what the best rain gear is. Well, <laughs> I would have told you Grundins for years, and I and I they probably really are, but. I was kind of bummed. I uh, th- they put me on uh, their staff as a uh, or pro staff or whatever, and I was kind of excited. I thought, oh, it's kind of cool that you know they want me to be uh, part of their staff. So they probably have a great product, but uh, I they didn't renew my contract. The uh, they informed me that they put all their money into the uh, the real fishermen. Apparently, they get more bang for their buck from Wild Bill from uh, Deadliest Catch. Than all the small time guys, and so I wasn't worth, uh, um, I wasn't worth keeping on. So I was a little butthurt about that, but I guess you gotta you gotta go where the money is. The other question I get all the time, as long as I'm talking about, is best kids rain gear. Boy, I don't know that the uh, Grundens has got the cutest kids rain gear. And I had talked to them a couple times uh, and sent in my uh, gear request ideas, but boy, their kid stuff just doesn't last. Uh, it would be really nice to see if someone could step it up. It looks really cute for their first couple photos. I guess I can say that now that uh, I guess I can say that now that they didn't view me as being an important part of anything. But uh, yeah, their kids' stuff is cute for a couple photos, but then it's basically throwaway stuff. The the buckles on them really suck. So if you're asking for a, a good pair of rain gear for your kids, cute for a photo, I don't really have a better suggestion than that so far, but. Uh, they last for a little bit. Unfortunately, they're kind of cheap, but just don't expect them to last. The buckles on them suck. Uh, best rain gear? Well, I guess it's still Grunden's. Um, I guess it's still Grunden's. I still wear them. A little dirty, they let me go, but hey, that's life. I guess we got to all move on, right? Um, let's see. What is my favorite fish? My favorite fish? What is my, fi- what is my favorite fish to catch? Joe. Well, my favorite fish to catch is whatever I'm fishing for at the time. I really, truly do love fishing on every level. So, I think, and I harp on this all the time, I think the important part is just to be appreciating the moment of where you're at and what you're doing. So, any fish, but if we're going to cut all that bullshit aside, if I could go fishing anywhere right now, it would be, if I could go fishing right this second for anything besides tuna, because that's what I do day and night. I would go cod fishing in New England with my friends back there. I think any time um, you're raised on a certain fishery, and that's where I really kind of cut my teeth, um, I, 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 I love fishing in New England. I love cod fishing, I love going cod jigging in New England. Um, again, there's another, like from the commercial standpoint, there's another kind of sad story. There's more cod fish from Iceland in New England then there is cod from uh, local fishermen, which is kind of a sad story. I will say, though, a huge shout-out to uh, New England Fishmongers. My friend Tim Ryder has pursued his passion um, in that fishery, and I give him a lot of credit for uh, working hard to try and keep that going. I remember when me and Tim were still living in an apartment together many, many moons ago, and... Uh, Sleeping on pizza boxes uh, as a pillow because we had been out drinking all night. So I would say that both of us have come pretty far in my life, but I am particularly proud of him for keeping his commitment to uh, to the fishery. I have to give him a sh- huge shout out, um, Tim Ryder, New England Fishmongers. Follow him and his beautiful girlfriend as they go out and catch fish sustainably, hook caught fish and local scallops. Uh, love those guys. Give them a follow. What is your favorite place to fish? Well, I just, I just answer that. My favorite place to fish is kind of, I guess, New, my, I want to say New England. I mean, kind of, what is my? but I mean, if you're going to go to the heart and soul of where Brickyard Pond, Exeter, New Hampshire, never forget your roots. That's where I first started fishing. I love that place. I remember one time a person went by when I was a kid and they called my parents because they were worried something had happened to me because they drove by the pond and it was the first time they never saw me there. So that was really cute. I remember that memory. Um, what the hell is the sound in the back of that last podcast? Ah, great question. For those of you guys who are not familiar with a Koki Frog that we have out here in Hawaii, that rhythmic sound in the background that was going off, I had tried last night, instead of using uh, the same app that I started with, I tried uh, that gentleman that I did a podcast with last night, Tricks of the Trade Podcast. Huge shout out again to him. Hope you're following him. Uh, I had tried his podcast, uh, his microphones uh, to try and look at the future of this podcast. And they are really good. And they definitely picked up a lot of noise that this microphone doesn't seem to pick up. And I have had a couple people ask me uh, what that sound was. So that, 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 those, those are frogs that we have out here. They're invasive frogs. I believe they originally came from the Philippines and now they are everywhere. I heard they started at a nursery in Kau. They came in on some kind of plant, and they are really taken over. My experience with them has been if you have one in your yard, they're an absolute headache. When you get to a certain ridiculous number, it's actually kind of tranquil. Some people really like them. So that is what the hell that was in the background. Um, Okay. Thank you, David. David E., that was David E. with What the Hell is the Sound in the Back of Your Podcast. Um, okay. Oh, shucks. Oops. Well, <laughs> if I didn't answer your question tonight, and you felt like I should have, it's because I just deleted your message trying to click on it. So I don't even know who that was, but sorry. And... A lot of t shirt questions. I, yes, I will start getting t shirts out. I promise a couple guys that have already sent me shirts, I will definitely get you shirts out. My shirts are, I wish fish was as popular as shirts were. Okay. That's. I know, I saw one more that I definitely wanted to answer. I, there's a lot of reoccurring, a lot of re- repeating questions that I kind of already answered to the best of my ability. Also, a lot of my friends saying totally inappropriate stuff that, although, is kind of entertaining, <laughs> even even inappropriate by... Um, do you want to trade shirts? Jeff Weber, yes. He's going to send me shirt for shirt i will definitely do that if you have a great if you have a great fishing shirt and you want to trade me for one of my t-shirts as long as i don't run out of them that is an absolute deal i will definitely rock your shirt i would appreciate that i take that as a total honor so absolutely i would do that here is another do i sell vicious cycle tees I don't currently sell them, but I will swap you a shirt if you have a good fishing shirt. And uh, maybe I should definitely sell them at some point if I get a little more organized. I guess I could send you a shirt if you wanna give me a donation. We'll put it towards my daughter's new fish stand that we're building. Our plan here in the future is to, um, our plan is in the future to have a little fish stand, so my daughter can understand uh, kind of about the basics of business. You know, nothing, um, nothing too fancy. We're not going to go over the top, but we're going to build her a little, little, little fish stand here because her lemonade stand is definitely not that successful. So, in fact, I would say her f- lemonade stand is kind of um, lose money, as they say in Hawaii every time so uh, it's a cute little venture but I'm hoping that maybe if we sell some fish on the side of the road instead of lemonade she might be able to um, might be able to up her game a little bit oh god let's see <laughs> no no I do not I mean I like men yes I do like men but I do not like men in the way that this message is implying whatsoever so no Thank you, flattered, but not interested, Corey. That's that's very kind of you, but again, flattered, but not interested. I know, I saw one message that I got earlier that definitely needs to be answered, and it's kind of been buried underneath. Kind of been buried underneath a bunch of these other questions and my friends giving me emojis of what appears to be eggplants and water. That seems to be a common trend. Thank you guys. I love you as well. Um, Let's see. Sorry to keep stalling this out here. There is, I just knew there was this one message that I really wanted to answer. I saw the guy's message. I wish I could answer that. It was a... uh Okay, this is getting ridiculous. Where is that message? Well... Oh... Why do I think there is so much drug addiction in fishing? Ooh, that is a great, great question. I don't know what the percentage is compared to other industries. I don't know if there's been studies in that or not. Um, this, this, name is, this gentleman's name is Casey, and he wants to stay totally anonymous, so we won't mention his last name. Um, but uh, why do I think there is so much addiction problems in Hawaii? Or is it Hawaii? Why do I think there's so much in commercial fishing in Hawaii? Well, I don't think that there is so much uh, drug addiction in Hawaii compared to any other commercial fishery. Um, I think that uh, part of the problem in our business is that – it's already can be very difficult to find people that want to live in the grueling conditions that are associated with commercial fishing. Um, you know, there, there are long periods of time, um, away from home. Um, the work is generally not very glamorous. So although I love it, I mean, I'm super passionate. I know other guys are really passionate. It's not work a lot of people want to do. So I think, uh, Sometimes what will happen is that we will take people fishing with us um, that society might consider uh, might consider you know kind of outcasts because you know we just we, we we need someone to work for us. We need someone who shows up, and even that sometimes is difficult showing up. But if they eventually show up, we need bodies. And, uh, also, I don't know, like, I think just kind of the rogue nature of the, uh, the business, the fact that, uh, you know, you are kind of like the last pirates, you know, in some ways, I mean, th- there's way more regulations than there used to be. Um, but you know, there still are a lot of freedoms a man can find out at sea. And like, for me, I, I have the opposite, like, uh, I, I, I have what's known as sehab. When I go to sea, I, I, my addictions on land, stay on land. I'm very fortunate that for me, Seahab as a lot of people call it is a place where like a fisherman finds clarity and generally sobriety. Like for me, I, I don't drink every day back at sea. I don't drink much at all or at all when I have my children, but if I don't have my children, I usually enjoy an adult beverage, you know? And, um, but at sea, none of that. Like, uh, I might, I might cross that line if I'm marlin fishing or, uh, with a charter and they want me to have like one beer late in the afternoon or if we're doing an overnighter, but when I'm commercial fishing, there is absolutely, uh, no alcohol, no drugs, nothing on my boat. Um, so for me, I find, um, I, I find clarity out at sea because, you know, I, I, I leave the noise of land, uh, land back, back on land where, where it should be, um, And I think a lot of fishermen do that too. I think over the years I've had a lot of guys. I mean I know I have. I could tell you a million stories, especially earlier on in my career. uh, As you're trying to establish yourself as a captain, it is hard to get people to go work with you a lot of times. And so you will take who you will take because they will show up or they don't show up or at least they're there. And you need somebody to go and you're not going to – you can't move ahead without these people. So you will take – some questionable characters possibly or some people dealing with their own demons. But you know the one thing I can really say about that, and it sounds like I'm kind of going all over the place. The one thing I can really say about that is that a man truly is not judged out at sea about the problems he has back at shore if he shows up to work. And, and I mean that. I've had guys that are just on again, off again guys over the years. And I, they have a lot of problems at home. But I don't care because when they're on the boat, they're there. And they work hard and they show up and they work hard. And like, you know, it's a reoccurring thing. I've seen it so many times, you know, like they, you know, the first couple of days of the trip, maybe the first day of the trip, they're a little banged up, but then, you know, they get the, they get some water in them and they get some salt water on them. And, uh, the next thing you know, they're, they're back they They, you know, they've got, they've got their, uh, they kind of got their their, 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 that step back, you know, that, that, that pep back in their step and the, and they're, and they're alive again, you know. And so, that's one reason I'll, I'll just never not, you know, why I'll probably always take some of those guys. You know, it's because I just know that there's a there there is a, a medicine in being offshore. And um, what happens a lot of times, these guys, they'll be working offshore, and then when they get back, you know, a lot of them say like, "Oh man, I'm never drinking again. I'm never going to do this. I'm never going to do that again." But uh, they get back to shore. And those demons come a calling, and uh, I think uh, sometimes it's just a bit too much. And I think the reason that the fishery has those kind of people is because we'll keep taking them back. You know, they'll go be a fuck up on land, but when they get back to the boat, we'll take them back because there is a place for them. We need them, you know. So I I think maybe that's why, because it's a place where a man can live two different lives and keep living until one of the places takes his life and more often than not it's definitely the addiction to the uh, substances and not the addiction to the sea that ultimately um, is their downfall okay this is the message I saw and uh, and Drew actually kind of was my inspiration Uh, Drew fish hippie he sent me a message, and uh, he sent me a message yesterday, and I thought, you know what, that is a great, great question. I said, uh, "It says, love the podcast, please keep it going. I had a question, maybe you can give some insight. At 26 years old and soon to be married, I find myself at a crossroads of continuing fishing, for a living, charter, a charter captain, or trying to find my way on land. Availability draws me towards land, but my passion pushes me to the ocean. What works for you and what doesn't? Looking forward to more, Drew. Well, Drew, ah, great question. And That is the question that you will battle your whole life. The pursuit of that that lives past the horizon and the normalcy that calls you at land. Now, for me, The biggest mistake I ever made without a question was trying to conform to other people's wants and desires. So I see this question and I ask myself, do you really want to be on land more or do you think that is the right thing for your marriage? Because if you believe that is the right thing for your marriage, I am going to tell you, my friend, your marriage is either going to fail or you are going to be a miserable fucker because anytime you take a fisherman away from the sea, the further you get them from the water, each day they die a little bit more inside. And one day, there's just nothing left of that person. And that's when you snap. You know, you can you can pretend to be someone else for a certain amount of time, but at the end of the day, that part of you that was a fisherman is gonna call. And when it calls, it's gonna come as a fucking gale. And I don't know if your marriage is gonna survive those fucking winds, my friend. And I'm trying to be optimistic for you, but if you're truly a fisherman, you can say you're gonna leave the sea, but your heart never will. And so, whew, You want my advice? If she loves you, she's gonna love fishing. If she doesn't love fishing? She doesn't love you? Let's see. Let's check out your profile, Drew. Oh, you're a handsome fucker. You're not gonna be alone. Ah. Ah, oh, yeah, man. Oh yeah, you're fine. You're a handsome fucker. She doesn't like fishing. You won't be lonely. I've heard that one before. You're going to die a lonely old man. That's not true. You'll be fine. You want to hear the cheesiest line I'll ever say on this podcast? There's plenty of fish in the sea. <laughs> I don't know. For me, man, whatever you ultimately end up doing, make sure you pursue your passion because... If you're not following your dreams, you're going to die a little bit every day. You really are, man. If you, if maybe you will be one of those people that can find a beautiful balance between being married and and uh, being away from the sea. But uh, from a fisherman's standpoint, who's passionate about fishing and who tried what you would call the normalcy uh, to appease a woman, let me tell you, that's a fucking, that is a disaster. That is a recipe for disaster. You have to be true to yourself If she's really the one man, she's going to be okay with fishing. She might grumble a little bit, but she's going to be okay with it. If there's some reason that you're, if you are really thinking about leaving fishing because that's what you think your marriage needs, I feel sorry for you, my friend. But I am going to say this. I am going to say this. I am not the best man to give marriage advice probably because I've been divorced but I am a good man to give fishing advice because I love fishing. So, whatever you choose to do, if fishing is truly what calls to you, I think it's time to have that talk, the big talk. It's not the marriage talk, it's the how do I go fishing and how do I keep you in my life talk. Best of luck with that, Drew. I hope that answers your question. Tight lines, I hope you rail them. I hope you get lots of fish and I hope you're able to find a beautiful balance or you have a good divorce attorney when that time comes. Uh, next question. What are the best sunglasses? My God. That is a question. I must get that question a 100 times a year. What are the best sunglasses for fishing? Well, very, very good question. I am uh, kind of stuck in my ways a little bit. I destroy more sunglasses than probably anybody. I um. I don't know. I easily go through eight pairs of glasses a year. Um, I'm really hard on them uh, because of the environment I'm in. Uh, I, I Right now, I would say Maui Gyms, for me, I really, really love their lenses, but I do destroy them. Uh, I know some people like the glass ones. I, I highly recommend, uh, for offshore, the Piahis. I really, really like those glasses uh, because they have a wraparound. For me, one thing I've discovered, uh, looking for birds, um is that I notice a big difference um, with with viewing things like looking for birds and also looking deep in the water with a full wrap around. Um, if I'm on land, I generally lock like a pair that's like I, f- I don't even remember what the hell they're called, but they're, they look closer to like a, a aviator glasses. I like those better because I don't like to have the panda bear eyes all the time that come with the Piahis if you wear them out at sea all the time. But um, so I wear two pairs of glasses. I also am a I have multiple pairs of sunglasses. So what I mean by that is I wear different sunglasses depending on the fishing conditions. I have rose-colored lenses, which I love for fishing. They're a little bit harder to get. I have blue and I have black. And I know that sounds a little excessive, but visual is so huge for what I do. If you're going to just own two pairs of glasses, you can even take that step to up your game. I highly, highly, highly recommend having a pair of rose glasses uh, for the overcast days, like a, with a, po- a rose-colored polarized glass, and a um, and then like your darker pair for the extremely bright days. I like the dark blue reflective uh reflective glass. But if that was me, if I was serious about fishing, I would have at least two pairs of glass. Always have a backup pair in your bag too. That's like the number one tip for a fisherman. Whatever kind of glass you have, always have at least one backup pair because. It's probably not if, it's just when are you gonna lose a pair of glasses. And anytime you lose a pair of glasses offshore, my God, does it suck? I mean, your eyes hurt, you squint, uh, you know, it's hard to see anything, and then you end up being so tired and fatigued. Can't emphasize enough the importance of glasses. That's also one of the reasons I go through so many sunglasses, is because, you know, once they get scratched and stuff, you don't wanna be exposed in the light where you have this, you know, they look visually okay, but they've got scratches. You're actually doing more damage to your eyes. Uh, than if you weren't wearing sunglasses at all. So that's something to be really conscious about. Really take good care of your eyes. Um, that, I know technology's gotten better for that kind of thing, but really take care of your eyes. Uh, they are pretty much the most important tool while you're a fisherman, probably followed uh, by your uh, your hands, but mostly your brain, you know? Probably your brain, eyes, and then hands. Um The decisions you make are really what ultimately leads to luck and I'll just end on that note. Be prepared for whatever, have the binoculars of choice, have your glasses, have a spare pair of glasses, Um, have all the fishing gear that uh, you think you might have and then pretty much might need and then pretty much double it. If it can go wrong at sea, it will and you don't want to be spending that time When you're a fisher behind the boat looking for something, you want to have it pre-made. I will emphasize this until my dying day that luck in fishing is when preparation meets opportunity. Thank you very much for listening. Have a beautiful day. Let's do this again. Aloha.